I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today we are taking a look at spiritual gifts with Dr. Sam Storms. He's a theologian, professor, pastor, and author, particularly the author of Understanding Spiritual Gifts, a Comprehensive Guide, published in 2020. Follow the link below to check it out. Dr. Storms, thank you so much for joining us today. It's good to be with you. All right. So, first of all, if you could give us some background on your own church, theological, denominational orientation. Give people an idea of where you're coming from. Well, I was raised a Southern Baptist, and uh, Southern Baptists are not traditionally known for their belief in spiritual gifts today. So I was uh, pretty much opposed to them up until the time um, uh, after seminary. I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a very cessationist-oriented school. I love my time there, though. Greatly appreciative for everything that I learned there. Um, I pastored, I pastored in a number of different churches, uh, an, in, uh, an independent Presbyterian church in Dallas for three years, um, uh, a somewhat Plymouth brethren oriented church for eight years, an independent Bible church, uh, for eight years, a vineyard for seven years. I was involved in a charismatic Anglican church while I was at Wheaton for four years. And then uh, just up until recently, I pastored Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, uh, which was in the Acts 29 network. So I'm kind of ecumenical. Uh, some people say I'm just confused, but had a lot of exposure, a lot of background in a, lot, in a variety of different traditions. All right. And uh, so getting into the spiritual gifts then, what would you say is the nature of the spiritual gifts? And particularly, can you talk about the supposed distinction between the non-supernatural gifts and the supernatural gifts. Sure. Well, my understanding is that Paul gives us the closest thing to a definition of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians twelve seven, where he says they are the manifestation of the Spirit. So it's the Spirit of God himself displaying or coming to visible and vocal manifest presence in and through the lives and ministries of God's people. So that's primarily, that's the closest thing to a, uh, a description of what a spiritual gift is. It's a manifestation of the Spirit. It's not the Spirit giving us something separate from Himself, distinguishable from Himself. It's the Spirit Himself operating in and through believers in a variety of different ways. Um, the distinction between so-called um, supernatural or maybe non-supernatural gifts I really don't buy that because if all spiritual gifts are a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, then they are all supernatural. They are not something that we can generate on our own or in our own strength or by virtue of our education. Um, they are, if, if they are each and every one expressions of what the Holy Spirit does, then by definition they are supernatural and to a certain extent miraculous in nature, although... Since there is a spiritual gift of miracles, we probably need to be careful in how we throw that term around, because it gets gets thrown around in a, in a variety of different ways. All right, and um, can you talk about how we receive the gifts of the Spirit? Is it something uh, where God just uh, sovereignly anoints us with gifts, or is it something that we're intended to pursue or even achieve? Um, well, it's both. I mean, for example, in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, uh, they were sitting there praying, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God gave them utterance, 
And Peter goes on to say that uh, they began to experience dreams and visions and prophesied. So it seems as if those were sovereign uh, acts of God. On the other hand, um, you know, uh, we are told in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 and verse 39 as well, to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. So it's clear that there's both an element of of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They don't cancel each other out. Um, it's it's very much the same with uh, something like evangelizing the lost. Our responsibility is to share the gospel. God's responsibility is to save souls. Or we're responsible to pray for the sick. It's up to God whether or not they ultimately are healed. So I think it's a I think it's a both and. I think um, certainly. If an individual has a desire for a particular spiritual gift, I would say, well, that may well be the Spirit of God who's put that desire on your heart because it's His ultimate will to give it to you in response to your prayer and your pursuit of it. Now, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, Paul says that it's the Holy Spirit who wills who gets what gift. Not We are not the ones who have ultimate control over that. Now, as far as how those gifts are imparted, there aren't there's a whole lot of evidence in the New Testament. You know, in Romans 1, Paul says, I want to come visit you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift. Now, we don't know what that, if he's talking about insight into the gospel, or he's talking about one of the gifts of the Spirit that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, and then, of course, there's uh, 1 Timothy 4, where Paul talks to Timothy about the gift that came to him when the elders laid their hands on him. And it came through prophecy. And then in 2 Timothy 1, Paul says, Kindle afresh the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. So it can happen sovereignly, God simply bestowing it, um, kind of surprising us. It can happen, I think, more times than not after the Spirit has pushed a, put a burden on our hearts to, to desire and to pray for a particular gift. And then he imparts it maybe sovereignly, maybe instantaneously, uh, maybe when people pray for us. In the case of Timothy, maybe when people lay hands on you, as Paul did Timothy. So there are there are several ways in which that might happen, but um, as far as I can tell, those are the only explicit references to how the Spirit imparts gifts in the New Testament. And could you say more about the human responsibility? If we're to pursue the gifts, how would you say instruct a congregation that wants to receive more of the gifts? How would they pursue them? Well, first of all, they have to do some study. They have to they have to do explore the New Testament um, as exhaustively as they can as to the nature and the purpose of these gifts. Uh, they have to pray that the Spirit of God would deepen their own hearts in terms of desire and yearning. Because, I mean, the First Corinthians 14, 1, it's earnestly desire, seek after. you got to want it real bad, I think is what Paul's saying. Um, I think also you have to provide opportunities for those gifts to be expressed. Uh, it's one thing to desire and pursue a gift and pray for it, but there's never any venue in which that can be uh, expressed outwardly in a safe place where people can, are willing to take risks and, not, and, and know that they're not going to be humiliated or called out or uh, judged, um, I think one of the other things you have to do is, uh, um, you know, you have sometimes you have to set a context spiritually in which the Spirit of God is pleased to move. Now, He's sovereign. He can move in any context, but it seems as if 
a context in which the Word of God is highly uh, honored, Jesus is being exalted, prayer is is pervasive, worship is intense and passionate and heartfelt, that these are the kinds of circumstances in which the Spirit of God is perhaps more likely to distribute gifts uh, than he otherwise might be. So those are just a few of the suggestions. And another one I tell people, um, you know, they say, well, I'd like this particular gift, but I don't know what to do. I said, well, why don't you search out other Christians you know and trust who already operate in that gift and hang out with them and watch how they do it and have them pray for you? So those are just a few of the suggestions I would give. Again, um, the New Testament does not, aside from prayer, it doesn't say how we are to earnestly desire or pursue. Um, it says, do not forbid prophecy or speaking in tongues. But as far as actual practical steps to take, there isn't a whole lot of explicit instruction. All right. So this is more along that same line in terms of uh, the authority we have as disciples or the agency. Um, someone, I mean, we have a hard time saying somebody healed somebody else, but we have no problem somebody preached the word of God as opposed to God's word was preached through him. Um, Christ doesn't call us to pray for the sick. He commands us to heal the sick. So, um, and there's that, that point in, uh, was it Luke 10, where Christ um, empowers or imparts these gifts upon his disciples and they actually go out and do this stuff. Mm -hmm. So what can you say about human authority or agency? Well, the Luke 10 passage uh, is a very important passage primarily because Jesus empowers and authorizes his followers. And again, it's the 72 who are anonymous. They're not apostles or elders or pastors. They're not even named. They're just average followers of Jesus. Who, to whom Jesus says, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Uh, in Luke 9, it says Jesus gave them power and authority over demons and commanded them to go out and heal the sick. Now, I do believe in James 5, 16, we're told, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. It also says there, the prayer of faith will raise up the one who is sick. So certainly praying for healing is, I think, uh, altogether legitimate. It is interesting that there is no explicit reference to anybody being uh, delivered of a demonic spirit through prayer. It is, as you said, through a command. Basically, Jesus said, get out and don't come back. Um, so, you know, we would have to differentiate a little bit between spiritual warfare and the authority over the demonic, which all Christians have, as over against um, the authority to operate in a particular gift, which only some would, would have based on what gift the Holy Spirit wants to dispense. All right. So um, you're Reformed. So if you could just give a very brief, brief definition of what Reformed theology is, and then why um, Reformed uh, theology, uh, Reformed churches often end up being cessationist or in, you know, in practice, sensationist. Sure. Yeah, they are. Um, yes, I am Reformed. I am a Calvinist. Now, when people ask me if I am, I say, well, tell me what you mean by the term, and then I'll tell you if I am one. And when they give a definition, it's usually a distortion. It's like, oh, you believe that, uh, you know, that people who want to come to saving faith in Christ are, not pre are prevented from doing so, and God takes great glee in casting people into hell against their will. That, that's a horrific, heretical distortion. 
of what Reformed theology is. Reformed theology basically, uh, although it has many variations, in my understanding, refers to someone who believes in the sovereignty of God and salvation, that the ultimate determinative factor in how we and whether we come to faith in Christ is God in his sovereign grace and his mercy. Now, the second part of your question is fascinating. Why is it that probably the predominant number of Reformed people and Reformed churches are cessationist and do not believe in these gifts of the Spirit? And there are a lot of, probably a lot of uh, reasons I could give. Let me just mention a couple. One is, is that there has happened in the body of Christ all through history a a divorce or a divergence between the mind and the affections, between principles and power, between the head and the heart. Um, and Reformed people are very cerebral. They love deep doctrine. They love digging into the complexities of theology. They want to be very precise in defining their terms. And sometimes in certain individuals, that proves inconsistent with a willingness to embrace the affections of the heart, like joy and peace and love um, and zeal and hunger and yearning. Um, and so there's this division between uh, an, or an orientation of Christianity toward the mind and an orientation toward the spirit, between truth and power. Um, and so typically you'll find a lot of Reformed people, maybe the majority of them, and I was this way before I came to believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, I was scared of the charismatic world. I thought they were allowing their emotions to dictate what they believed. I don't believe that's the case. In fact, oftentimes, it's the Reformed people's lack of experience that dictates what they believe. It's not so much charismatics have experience and base their doctrine on it. It's the Reformed people don't have an experience and base their doctrine on the absence of hmm. it. So... Um, I think there's the, uh, you know, the, just the general tendency to be afraid of the unknown, afraid of losing control. I think also, um, you know, the uh, kind of the basis on which Reformed people will operate in unity with other Christians is agreed upon doctrine, theological unity. For Charismatics, it's more a common experience. I've encountered the power of God. Um, I've experienced intimacy with Jesus. So it's it's really sad that that these this divergence has has happened. That's why I am so committed to the convergence of word and spirit. We have to have both. Um, these are not uh, um, concepts that God would permit us to separate and divide. We have to embrace both. So again, charismatics. Um, oftentimes are not Reformed because uh, they place so much emphasis on prayer and evangelism and intimacy with the Lord that they think the sovereignty of God is going to kind of suppress that. And the Reformed um, are not really open to the charismatic gifts because they're afraid it's going to highlight emotions and affections and experience above uh, the inspired and infallible Word of God. So there's a lot of work to be done to bridge this gap between the two. Um, I don't hesitate at all in calling myself a charismatic Calvinist. And when people say, how can you do that? My simple response is, the man who wrote Romans 9 also said, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. That's the Apostle Paul. There you go.
Yeah, I think also, like you said, um, Reformed theology uh, emphasizes God's sovereignty, but there's a danger in the, with the charismatics to emphasize human authority and human initiative. Mm-hmm. But I'm also interested in hearing about your own personal experience. Um, are you, uh, how do other Reformed non-charismatics regard you? Are they suspicious? Do they consider you a traitor to the cause or what? When I first embraced the gifts of the Spirit, um, I was basically consigned to the lunatic farm. They just said, Storms has lost his mind. He needs to be institutionalized. Um, I, I hope that's not the case any longer. But yeah, there's a, there's a certain keep him at arm's length. Um, like, uh, you know, is he really to be trusted? Uh, has he sacrificed his mind for the sake of some heightened euphoric experience? Um, the fact of the matter is a a lot of the reason why the reform people will, and again, most of my really close reform cessationist friends are very welcoming, loving. We have great relationship. Some of those who are more, uh, who are less inclined in that way would point to the fanaticism that they've seen on the internet and certain so-called TV evangelists and traveling ministers. And they've seen um, manipulation and extremes and sensationalism. And they think, well, if you're a charismatic, I guess you have to buy into that ministry style. And so they want to kind of keep a, keep their distance from anyone who's inclined in that way. But, um, I mean, I'm on the serve on the Council of the Gospel Coalition, which is a reformed confessional um, organization. And I'm warmly welcomed there and received and participate freely. I have great friends uh, in the Reformed cessationist world. So most of those with whom, if not all of those with whom I'm in close friendship, they're wonderful, very receiving, very affirming, even if they disagree. Those who probably know me less might still be a little skittish with around me. You know, it's Sometimes I get the feeling like uh, they don't want to brush up too closely, like they'll catch some sort of disease. You know, I've got Could like happen. About, yeah, like I've got leprosy or something. <laughs> So would you say overall, over the decades that you've seen uh, cessationism on the way out within reform circles? That's, at least lessening significantly. That, yeah, that's hard to judge. I think sometimes it comes in waves. Um, I would say in general, I would find, I would say that um, it is diminishing in the reformed world. Uh, sadly, that doesn't mean that Reformed men and women are pursuing and practicing the gifts. It's it's a little bit along the lines of they've finally come to realize that no basis in the New Testament can support cessationism. There are no texts that give us reason to think these gifts aren't operative. But that doesn't mean they're therefore going to pursue them and practice them and implement them in their church and and you know tweak their order of service on a Sunday and and train their small group leaders in how to pray for the sick and and deliver prophetic words. So they are theologically continuationist. Functionally, they're cessationist. Right. Uh, right. There are a lot of people in the reform world like that. But okay, trying to trying to uh, definitively give a an overall sense for what are the percentages, or you know, which is going up, which is going down. That would be a little bit hard to do. Okay. Well, let's um, dig more into some of the gifts. So um, there's different schools of thought 
on the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom that you talk about in your book. So could you say more about that? And particularly, I'm interested in your um, stories about Spurgeon. (laughs) Yes. Some believe that word of knowledge and word of wisdom is simply speaking uh, a word that is rooted in the knowledge we have of what is revealed in Scripture. In other words, it's not supernatural or miraculous at all. Um, I'm inclined to think that these are revelatory gifts, Um, and um, I have reason for that. We see, I think we see these expressed in the New Testament. Um, How did Peter know that Ananias and Sapphira had lied to the Holy Spirit about the money they had pledged, and in fact they held back? Uh, How did Paul know in Acts uh, 13 that a man had, or is it Acts 14, that man had faith to be healed? How did he know the Philippian a slave girl was actually demonized when she was act- proclaiming the truth about who Paul was. So I think these are revelatory gifts. They're nowhere else defined in the New Testament. The only place they appear is in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, and so uh, I think they are, the difference is, is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Uh, if the Lord should disclose or reveal to me some fact about you that I could not have learned through natural means, that would be a word of knowledge. A uh, word of wisdom would be when he reveals to me or impresses on my heart some practical guidance for decision-making that you're confronted with in life. That would be more of a word of wisdom. Um, so I do believe those are revelatory gifts. I do. I know that uh, um, that some think that they are normal, that come through the process of just study of God's Word or common sense. But given the fact that they're among a list of nine gifts, most all of which I think are, in fact, more miraculous in nature, I'm inclined to think that they are revelatory. And uh, in the church today, I, in my own experience and others, I mean, words of knowledge I hear about many times, mm-hmm. but I never hear about words of wisdom as a miraculous revelation. Um, are you familiar? Do you know of examples of that? Sure. Uh, I mean, situations where, um, you know, somebody may have a very strong impression in a in a small group and they turn to somebody about whom they really know nothing. And they say, the Lord just strongly impressed on my heart that you are facing a critically important decision. And they might describe here are the options, A, B, C or D. And uh, I just sense from the Lord a warning about one of these, whether or not B, C, or D is the right one, I'm not sure, but uh, be very cautious about this. And maybe they have uh, accompanying information in that revelation that would lead that person who's receiving it to say, wow, it seems to me like you've really received insight from the Lord for me that helps me process the options that are in front of me. So yeah, that happens. That can happen very fairly regularly, at least in our church it does. Okay, so I, I take back what I've said. I guess I didn't think of those as words of wisdom, and I've heard of plenty of those myself. So mm-hmm. I sit corrected. It's all right. All righty. So how, and how about the Spurgeon story then? Well, that's interesting because Charles Spurgeon is, of course, the hero of the Reformed faith. He was a very strong uh, Calvinist preacher, uh, believed in the sovereignty of God and salvation. And he records in his autobiography Uh, several instances in which in the middle of his preaching, God would reveal to him something about an individual in the congregation that he'd never met. And he actually would stop and point them out and call them to account, called one man to account uh, for having um, 
basically stolen a certain amount of money from his employer. Um, another, uh, he pointed at a young man. He said, young man, those gloves you're wearing are belong to your employer. You stole them. Um, and of course, these guys are saying, there's no way in the world he could know this. Nobody else in the world knew this was true of me. And Spurgeon goes on to say, in more than a dozen instances, I can recall suddenly being in, uh, in, the, in possession of the knowledge or insight about some fact concerning the person's life or behavior. Um, and I had no way of knowing what it was. In fact, he even talks about how in a couple of cases, it led certain individuals to come to saving faith in Christ. So it's interesting. I, Spurgeon was probably a cessationist theologically, but his experience was more charismatic in nature. He said, yeah, this has happened uh, on a number of occasions in my ministry. That's and wild. Cessationists really don't know what to do with that. They say, well, <laughs> maybe Spurgeon's exaggerating or we'll allow for a few exceptions here and there. But, um, yeah, I think it's fascinating. All right. And uh, how about the nature and purpose of prophecy? What can we tell about prophecy from Scripture? Yeah, I think the easiest definition for prophecy is it's speaking forth in merely human words, something the Holy Spirit has brought to mind. Um, so, um, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their edification. It's designed to build them up for their encouragement and for their consolation. So that's the primary purpose of prophecy. Um it's hard to differentiate between prophecy and word of knowledge and word of wisdom. Paul never makes any attempt to differentiate between them. So I tell people, don't worry about it. Um, sometimes I think prophecy can be a little bit more of the umbrella, all-encompassing term, beneath which are things like word of wisdom, word of knowledge, uh, discerning of spirits. So, uh, again, some people kind of freak out when we talk about prophecy because um, we say very clearly that the foundation for all prophetic words is a revelation from God. And they kind of, wait a minute, I thought revelation ceased when the final book of the New Testament was written. And are you suggesting that God is giving canonical scripture? Should we write down prophecies today and slide them in behind the New Testament? Well, no. Let's remember something. Paul commanded all Christians, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, 14, 39, to especially pursue and desire prophecy. He would give the same instruction to every church. So here we have probably thousands of Christians who were obeying Paul, who were receiving revelatory words, delivering them for the encouragement and edification of other Christians, and yet not one of them is found in Scripture. So Paul had no expectation that, that these were canonical in nature. Now, certainly, some prophets delivered words that were canonical. What we mean by that is to be included in the 66 books of the biblical canon. But not all prophecies. I mean, think, for example, of, uh, of uh, uh, Philip's four daughters. Uh, Philip the Evangelist had four daughters who are all described as having the gift of prophecy. Uh, which would be made for very interesting dinner conversations at that home. Can you imagine? Um, we read in First um, uh, Corinthians 11 that uh, when women pray or prophesy in the church, well, we don't have any other prophetic words recorded. 
So again, prophecy in the New Testament, I think, operated at a lower level of authority than the kind of prophetic utterance given by apostles. So for example, you know, Paul in, uh, I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 14, he says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul's saying all alleged prophetic words are subordinate to the apostolic authority that I carry. Some people might say, well, gosh, that I guess we shouldn't care much for prophecy. No, in the very next verse, he says, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So immediately after saying, hey, you prophets, your authority is subordinate and secondary to mine, but hey, earnestly desire to prophesy. It's a good gift. It helps build people up in the faith. All right. Well, that brings me to the distinction then between Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. Because it sounds like you're saying there's a lot more encouragement. Go ahead, prophesy in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it's like, beware. This is dangerous. Yeah, there's a there's an ongoing debate. And I'm still, I mean, I did I do have an entire chapter in my book on this. And I'm, I'm evaluating and reassessing my arguments there. Um, most want to say that Old Testament prophecy was absolutely infallible. And if anybody failed in a prophetic word, that uh, they came under severe discipline, if not judgment. Although, as best we can tell, I don't think there's a single instance of anybody being stoned to death for a false prophecy in the Old Testament. It's interesting, those Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18... Um, are really speaking to people who use alleged prophetic words to lure people away from the worship of Yahweh to worship other gods. So it's it's basically manipulating people through that gifting in order to lead them into idolatry. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other side of it is they say, well, New Testament prophecy um, can be a mixture of the infallible divine revelation, but then our fallible interpretation and application of it. Uh, So that may be the distinction. Some now are pushing back and saying, but a closer look would indicate that there are instances in the Old Testament where an Old Testament prophet might not have gotten it all correct. They might have missed it here or there. So some say the gift is the same in both canon and both testaments. I would still contend that there's a differing level of authority between the two. That's why in the New Testament, Paul says, um, you know, judge or weigh prophetic words. First Thessalonians 5, um, assess them, test them, hold fast to what is good, reject what is bad, because they come in a mixture. Now, what God reveals is always true. It's always infallible. But we don't always interpret it correctly. I mean, I'm looking at the infallible written word of God right now. It's called the Bible. But I don't always interpret it infallibly. I can make mistakes in interpretation, and I can in turn make mistakes in its application to people's lives. Uh, But we don't reject the Bible because I'm fallible in my interpretation of revealed truth, nor should we reject the gift of prophecy simply because we are fallible in how we understand and apply what God may have brought to mind. Okay, a couple more questions about that. Uh, you also spend some time talking about priesthood, so if you could talk about that. Plus, um, some people will say, well, New Testament prophecy, it's all about edification and comfort, which you already mentioned, but Old Testament prophecy is about judgment. 
Yeah. Okay. The first part of the question was what now? The first part was uh, priesthood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The point there simply is people say, well, the, the word prophet in the New Testament must mean the same as the word prophet in the Old. And the fact of the matter is there are probably numerous instances in which words take on different meanings dependent upon their context. So a priest in the Old Covenant obviously had to come from the tribe of Levi, but all believers are priests in the New Covenant. There's a difference. The priesthood itself has been transformed because of the person and work of Christ. Um, I mean, even in the New Testament, the word sanctification differs in its meaning depending on its context. Sanctification in the book of Hebrews uh, is different from how Paul uses sanctification in the book of Romans. So we need to be careful that we don't automatically assume that because a word means one thing in one text or in one testament, it has to mean the same thing in all contexts in, in the other testament. Um, and then the other question was, you asked about... Um, many Christians, I hear them talking about the New Testament prophecy oh, is about yeah. edification, not judgment. Uh, I think we have to be careful there. It's not either or. It's kind of a both and. Because certainly people were encouraged and built up through prophetic words in the Old Covenant. And people, you know, there are times in the New Testament where, um, think about 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says you're in a corporate gathering and um, an unbeliever comes in and you all prophesy and the secrets of his heart are exposed and he falls on his faith confessing that God is among you. So that was obviously somewhat of a... Uh, uh, of a word of judgment that exposed his sin to himself. Um, you have Paul in, uh, was it Acts 13 with Elimas the magician, where Paul um, prophesies that he is in the grip of uh, the enemy. He's the son of the devil, and he pronounces judgment on him as a result. Um, you know, so I think there are probably, I mean, the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy, and there's a lot of judgment there. So I think generally speaking, and again, not exhaustively, generally speaking, the prophetic in the New Testament has its primary purpose to build up, edify, and, and console. That doesn't mean that there can never be a negative word that uh, brings conviction of sin or calls somebody to repentance. Um, so... I think we have to be careful that we don't make it always an either or. Sometimes it's a blend. It's a both and. All right. And uh, also in your chapter on prophecy, you spend a good chunk of time talking about Paul's journey to Jerusalem. So um, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because um, I think it reveals this threefold dimension that I call revelation, interpretation, application not original with me. I think a lot of people have classified prophetic words in that way. Um, you know, Luke 21, Paul and Luke are traveling together with others, and the disciples in Tyre, where they had stopped, are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And evidently, um, Philip's four daughters chime in, it would appear. Um, Agabus also has a vision in which he sees Paul being severely persecuted by a Jewish mob. And so they are pleading with Paul not to go. And it says, if I can remember without looking at it exactly, 
in Acts 21, it says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, let me just turn there real quick, um, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Yeah, here we are, Acts 21, verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, that is entire, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go into Jerusalem. Well, here's the thing. Paul said, I'm going anyway. So was Paul disobedient to a prophetic word? But then if you read earlier in Acts 19 and 20, Paul twice says, everywhere I go, the Spirit of God tells me that I am going to be persecuted. And so um, I want to try to find uh, uh, one particular text, if I can, where he says, I think it's in Acts 19, um, pretty sure it is. I'd have to go back and look more closely. But Paul basically says, I'm constrained by the Spirit, knowing that in every town I am going to be persecuted. So Paul says, look, he's saying to Luke and Agabus and Philip's daughters and disciples at Tyre, says, I don't deny that you got a revelation from God that's spot-on accurate. You had a vision, a dream, an impression, whatever it was, of me being sorely persecuted. And then they probably interpreted that to mean, if Paul goes, he's going to be killed, and therefore they apply it by saying, don't go. And Paul says, hold on. The revelation you got is accurate. The Spirit of God's told me the same thing. But the Spirit of God has also told me I'm still to go. And, Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Paul ends up going anyway. So I think it's a helpful paradigm for how prophecy often happens. Um, It's interesting. Nowhere in the text does it say that since Paul disobeyed or did not, let's put it this way, did not heed the counsel of his friends, Luke doesn't say, hey, I guess that just proves prophecy is ridiculous. It's not helpful. Uh, You know, we got to can it. we got to suppress it. Uh, nowhere do we read anything of that sort in the text. So I think it's a good story for people to read, Acts 21. Uh, plus, I also think, although this would get us a little deeper than we want to go, that um, the way in which Agabus and the others interpreted the revelation turned out to be inaccurate. Uh, it wasn't the case that the Jews delivered Paul over to the Roman uh, soldiers. The Roman soldiers had to come and deliver Paul from the Jews who were trying to kill him. So it's interesting when you look at all the details that it tells us a lot about how prophecy either did or did not function. All right, let's move on to discernment of spirits. What is that all about? How do you understand that? Yeah, again, it's the only place in the New Testament where it's referred to. We don't have a definition. I think he's talking about the spirit-empowered ability to differentiate between what the Holy Spirit is doing, what the human spirit may be doing, and what a demonic spirit may be doing. Um, I mean, I was speaking with um, a group of about 250 uh, young people this last week in California, and I asked them the question. I said, now I want you to be honest. How many of you have walked into a, a shopping mall or a school or somebody's home or some setting somewhere and you suddenly felt this overwhelming sense of spiritual darkness that just almost made you physiologically sick, and you sensed that something evil and demonic was either present there or was going on. I mean, literally every single one of them raised their hand. Mm. 
Hmm. I think what happens when that occurs is God grants a person a spirit-empowered ability to discern the presence and the activity of demonic power. I've had this happen to me a half dozen times, and I know it. I know it immediately. Uh, I mean, it's not a gift that I have all the time, but it comes and goes. It's one of those sovereign circumstantial gifts. Uh, but I think that's probably what Paul has in mind. Um, Acts 16, going back to that story in Philippi, where this girl is saying, hey, these guys are proclaiming the good news of God. And of course, she was saying the truth, but Paul discerned that she was doing it under the energy and the empowerment of a demonic spirit. And he didn't want his ministry to be uh, embraced because of what demons were saying. So he rebuked her and cast the demon out. So that may be an example of discerning the spirits. All right. Um, but does it also have to deal with, um, say, there's a conflict in the church and some people are saying one thing, other people are saying another thing. I'm trying to discern really what the motivation maybe more of an emotional or dysfunctional spirit as opposed to something demonic, but maybe more psychological. Yeah, I, I think all Christian counselors and pastors wish they had this gift because it, there's so many times when we're confronted with situations that are complex and deep-seated and we say, what's at the root of this? Is this because of some childhood abuse? Is it because of abandonment? Is it, is it a physiological chemical imbalance? Is it the uh, oppressive work of a demonic spirit? Is it an indwelling demonic spirit? Uh, is it bad teaching, ungodly beliefs that you've embraced over the years? To be able to discern and to understand the answer to those questions, I think would prove to be incredibly valuable to Christians in ministry. So it's not always just being able to differentiate between the Holy Spirit and the demonic spirit. But just the ability to discern and draw conclusions about the nature of what's going on in a person's life or in the, and, in the life of a local church. And then that could tie into word of wisdom or word of knowledge. Sure. Like th this brother has a spirit of envy and he just always wants to look better than the other brother. But he actually envies the other brother. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Oftentimes these gifts will overlap uh, considerably and, and they function in tandem with each other. All right, then. Um, so about New Testament healing, what, um, what is your take on that? My take is, is that the majority of the Christian world totally misunderstands what Paul means by this. It's very interesting in the original text, both the word gifts and healing are in the plural. It's gifts, plural, of healings, plural. Mm. And I think Paul is saying there, because I see it played out in the New Testament itself and in experience, I think he's saying that God does not grant a person the gift for healing, as if somehow, uh, once I get that gift, I should be able to pray for anybody with any disease and they instantly get healed. That's how most people today think of the gift. And so they look out on the Christian world and they say, well, I don't see that happening anywhere. If that were happening, we should be emptying hospitals on a daily basis. Therefore, this gift is no longer being granted. Well, this gift was never granted. There's no such thing as the gift of healing. If by that you mean a singular gift effective for every person and every disease for whom you pray. I think Paul is saying that God grants a variety of differing gifts 
for a variety of different afflictions so that a variety of different people might be healed. So, for example, um, somebody comes to me on a Sunday morning and they say, Sam, I have incredibly arthritic knees and it's hard for me even to stand, much less walk. Would you pray? So I pray. I said, Lord, would you grant me, would you be pleased to grant me a gift for this particular healing of this particular affliction? And let's say I pray for the person and they get instantly healed. Well, the person standing five feet away has been watching and they say, hey, I've got the same problem. I've got horribly arthritic knees. Would you do the same for me? And I pray and nothing happens. What ha what's going on? God granted me a gift for a healing for one person, but he chose for his own sovereign good reasons not to give me a gift for the healing of a person with the same affliction. So if we would just get out of our minds this idea that the gift of healing was given to people in order that they could always heal everyone uh, on all occasions of every disease, I think we could better operate. Healing gifts are what I call circumstantial and occasional. They're not subject hmm. to our will. They're subject to God's will on particular circumstances and occasions when he wants to heal somebody. So Paul couldn't instantly heal Epaphroditus in Philippians 2. Pa Epaphroditus lingered near death for a considerable period of time before God had mercy on him. Uh, Paul couldn't heal Trophimus. He left him ill at Miletus, we read about in 2 Timothy. Uh, he couldn't heal Timothy, his spiritual son, of his frequent stomach ailments. And whatever his thorn in the flesh was, Paul couldn't heal himself. And in Galatians 5, he seems to talk about a severe eye affliction. So again, um, not everybody, even somebody who operated in healing as much as Paul did, couldn't heal anyone, everyone, of every disease. So, well, I wish people could really get a grasp on healing gifts and we would dispense with a lot of this confusion and these silly statements that my love, my friendly cessationist people make when they say, well, let's go down to the local hospital and empty into the cancer ward. Well, if, if it were God's purpose and timing to grant healing for everybody there, we could do that. But it just simply isn't. God is sovereign. He distributes gifts for healings according to his purpose and, and in accordance with his timing. So you got me preaching there on healing. All right. All right. We need to clarify a lot of the mistakes that are made. So um, this this ties back to uh, cessationists, perhaps, but uh, or people like them, maybe not quite in that category. But that prayer so often that I've heard, God, we pray for healing if it is your will. And it just I've always gotten the impression it's like, you don't really believe this, do you? Or you don't really want this badly, do you? It's so how would you address that sort of thought? Yeah, it's a good question. I think some people use that language to give them uh, an escape. It's kind of a loophole. So that if they pray and the person isn't healed, um, they can shift the blame off themselves, off the person. They say, well, obviously it wasn't God's will. Well, the fact of the matter is sometimes I believe, you know, I know that other charismatics disagree. Sometimes it isn't God's will to heal. Uh, Romans 8, 28 is always true that God is always working everything together for our good, for our good and his glory. And sometimes that means um, he wills that we remain in a certain bodily sickness or illness so that he can accomplish something even greater than our physical healing. 
Many times in the New Testament, we read about uh, if it be thy will. For example, uh, Paul says, if by God's will I can come to Rome. Um, I'm praying that it would be God's will I can visit you. You know, James 5, we should pray, if God wills, I'll do this or that and go to this city or that city. So all of our lives, everything we do is subject to God's will. And many times we don't know what that will is. Paul obviously didn't have a clue as to whether it was God's will for him to get to Rome. That's why he said in Romans 15, 30 to 33, strive with me in your prayer so that if by God's will I might come to you. Now, he eventually did, but at the time he wrote that in Corinth, he didn't know. So um, I don't I don't pray for the sick and, and qualify it by saying, if it be your will. I pray for the sick and say, Father, I know your heart is for healing. You love to bless your people and your children. And I'm asking you, according to your sovereign good pleasure, that you would be pleased to heal this person right now of this affliction. Uh, that's how I approach the issue. I, I think it's dangerous to say one way or the other, well, we ought to always tag on the phrase, if it be your will, or we should always say, it's always God's will. I, that's presumptuous to me, and I think we need to be careful in how we use that language. Right. I don't need somebody praying for me to say, it's always God's will to heal. On the other hand, if somebody prays, if it is your will, I'd r- rather say, okay, thanks, but not again, please. I want something a little stronger than that. So this brings up what we're talking about before. Um, yes, James does say, um, pray for the sick, but in the actual act of praying, um, we look at the words of Jesus and uh, what so many uh, modern-day healers will teach is that command form is the, the most effective and most biblical way to go about it. What are your thoughts on that? In the ministry of Jesus, that's true. Uh, I don't think there's a single case where Jesus prayed for somebody to be healed. He commanded them to be healed. Um, I think maybe the only place that you might cite as a counter example would be the raising of Lazarus. When it talks about Jesus prayed to the Father, and then he commanded Lazarus to come forth. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I personally, it just depends on what I sense the Spirit of God doing in the moment. There are times when I will say to an individual, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Doesn't mean they always are. But I think I have good precedent in the ministry of Jesus himself for approaching it that way. There are other times when I'll say, Father, uh, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, would you now heal so-and-so of this affliction? I think that's perfectly legitimate as well. So, you know, James 5 does talk about uh, praying for one another and offering the prayer of faith and so that they might be healed. So I think both are true. I think some people might get a little bit over the top in their commanding somebody to be healed. Um, it happens. Yeah, yeah, it does happen. And I just, I just sent, honestly, I just follow the prompting of the Spirit. And if I feel the Spirit has given me a strong conviction that, it, that He's going to heal somebody, um, then I might speak the word of command rather than a word of request. So maybe for a Pentecostal, you'll command, but for a cessationist, you would pray. (laughs) Or I should command the cessationist. 
Uh, <laughs> no, I won't. I won't do that. <laughs> there you go. So, how about the gift of faith, and how is that different than the faith that God has given every believer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, that plays hand in glove with healing. Those really go in tandem, I believe, many times. Yeah, all of us have saving faith. You and I have faith in Christ right now. People watching this have faith. The gift of faith is something different. It's what I would call the extraordinary supernatural surge of confidence that God gives you that he's going to do something right now for which you may not have biblical warrant. So... um, there was an incident many years ago when a little boy with a life-threatening liver affliction, he was just three weeks old, um, we prayed for him, and God granted me the gift of faith. I knew the, the little guy was healed. I couldn't doubt. I tried to doubt. I thought I was being arrogant and presumptuous. I knew he was healed. The next day, the doctor's report came back, totally healed. He's in his 30s today, living a great life. So... Um, I think it's that extraordinary uh, confidence that just goes beyond the beyond what we typically say when we say, I have faith in God. This is where I have faith that God is going to do something truly miraculous right now for this person in this particular situation. So wouldn't that um, require a word of knowledge to go along with that? I would say the word of knowledge might accompany it. I don't think it would require it. Um, but yeah, there, there might be a revelatory dimension, uh, that's sim- that's similar to a word of knowledge. Yeah, I can see that. Sure. Okay. Um, apostleship. So this is a sticky one for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, the secessionists, especially probably, well, a whole lot of evangelicals are really leery of that notion. But um, uh, talk about apostleship in terms of gift, office, qualifications, and then the controversy of apostles today. Yes, it's hard to understand how apostleship could be a gift. Um, because... Paul talks about us earnestly desiring the greater gifts, and he always lists apostleship first. Well, how do you, how do you desire to be an apostle? I mean, how to and what is apostling? If I can coin a, a word, um, it may be that apostle is more an office, uh, an authoritative role in the church, um, to which God appoints a person or calls certain individuals. Um, I do think we have to differentiate between uh, the 12, uh, obviously after Judas died by suicide, Matthias took his place, uh, and all other apostles, because the 12 are unique. They're a closed company. Um, They have their names written on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. So um, I think there's a distinction uh, between the original 12 and other apostles. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15 about all the other apostles. He seems to say in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 that he anticipates apostles will be operative in local churches. I think the problem comes when people begin to think, oh, if you're an apostle, you get to write Scripture. Well, very few of the apostles wrote Scripture. You know, Matthew, Paul, John, Peter, um, Luke wasn't an, an apostle. 
Um, the book of Hebrews was written most likely by a non-apostle, and most of the apostles never wrote Scripture. So the idea that somehow being an apostle carries this universally applicable authority over all Christians just isn't true. Um, so I think an apostle today, for example, would be somebody um, who exercises uh, a unique influence over a body of believers or a collective uh, organization or network of churches who have willingly and voluntarily submitted themselves to the insight and oversight of that individual. Um, I think, for example, um, since you know we've both been in vineyard churches, John Wimber, I think, was apostolic. Um, I think Terry Virgo in England, uh, the leader of the New Frontiers Network of Churches, is apostolic. I think Matt Chandler, who oversees the Acts 29 Network, is apostolic. I think Mike Bickle in Kansas City is apostolic. Um, but the idea that somehow what's problematic today is that in the so-called New Apostolic Reformation, those who are a part of it, if it's, a, if it's an it at all, basically say um, churches need to be reorganized. Pastors and elders are no longer the governing authority of a local church. Apostles now are. I don't see that in the New Testament. That's just simply contrary to what the New Testament teaches about how local churches are governed. I think apostles can function within a church that is governed by elders and pastors, but um, that notion that somehow uh, there's an ecclesiological restructuring in the present day that hasn't been true for the last 2,000 years, I think is really misguided. Hmm. So I have no problem in recognizing contemporary apostles. Um, I just think we have to be careful about those who are self-appointed and come in and say, hey, because I am an apostle, you have to submit to my authority. That's that's bad. Right. So Wimber was asked or told he was an apostle or something, and, and he refused to take that title on for himself. He was like, no, I'm just I'm just a dude trying to to be a Christian or something. Virtually every name that I mentioned a moment ago would deny that they were apostolic. And yet right. all of them probably were. Okay, yeah, it's that's humility. a tricky one. It's humility. They don't want to to take that title to themselves. It sounds a little braggadocia and a little pompous. So I think they're just cautious. But they functioned apostolic. In right. Apostolic in our way. culture today, nobody has a problem calling themselves a teacher. Right. Right. An evangelist, that's problematic. Pastor, okay, in the church, but in the world, don't like that word. Prophet, even trickier, but apostle is like, yeah. that's the hardest one of all. So That is. It is. <laughs> all righty. So um, this is a really interesting topic I've always been confused about. There are so many stories of the miraculous happening amongst uh, non-believers, non-Christians, non-Christian religions. And how do we account for that? I mean, some of those are healings where we'd say, well, mm -hmm. it seems like that was a good thing. Um, others, obviously, are a lot darker. Others are more neutral. I mean, it might be a psychic helping the police um, find a lost person or find some clue in a, in a case that needs to be solved. Mm -hmm. So how do we understand that? Um, is, this, is that the Spirit of God or the, something else? It could be several things. I do think God in common grace 
empowers non-Christians to do some remarkable things. Common We call it common grace because it's God's grace that is distributed universally. It's the kind of, it's not saving grace. It's not the grace that actually redeems and forgives and draws people to faith in Jesus. Uh, but you look at you look at the world down through history and even in our day, at people who are horribly depraved and wicked, and yet they are incredibly gifted and they accomplish wonderful things uh, for the sake of uh, humanity at large. And how do they do that? Well, God grants these kinds of gifts and talents and abilities to people even who hate him. Um, I think the spirit can obviously can enable somebody to do something supernatural. Uh, for example, at the end of Matthew 7, remember the religious leaders came and said, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name? And Jesus doesn't deny that they did. He says, yeah, but I never knew you. Depart from me, mm. you workers of lawlessness. So um, we know that Satan performs supernatural phenomena. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says he performs signs and wonders. Um, so it, it, it can be, it, sometimes it's the Spirit operating through common grace. Sometimes he seems to empower uh, non-Christians to do things that appear to be similar to spiritual gifts. Um, and then oftentimes it's demonic. So there may be other explanations as well, but those are certainly the ones that I would see as being the most biblical. All right, because some people I've heard say something like, well, Satan healed that person um, because it was through a, a false religion, right? And I'd have a hard time saying that Satan can heal somebody. Well, on the other hand, if that person was an evildoer and they'd killed a hundred people and they're about to kill a hundred more, and then they got healed in order to do such an abominable deed, then maybe Satan could heal. Who knows? Or God could permit, you know, God could permit that. And Satan's reason for healing is to deceive people into thinking that he's God and God isn't God. You know, to, to, to lure them away from uh, trust in Jesus. So, yeah, the supernatural phenomena uh, are not always of a good source. They're sometimes from an evil source. And we have to be discerning. We need All to right. get to discerning the spirits. <laughs> All right. And uh, finally, so uh, the charismatic renewal movement. Mm -hmm. So um, obviously there's movements. Um, there's a lot going on there, but you, you spend some time writing about that at the end of your book. So what do you see as its strengths and weaknesses and the future? So go ahead, spend some time on this. I'm very interested in this. Yeah, I'm just looking at my book. I actually turned to that page at the end. It's an appendix in my book on spiritual gifts. Well, I think the Charismatics have done a really good job in bringing a more holistic approach to Christian life and ministry. In other words, we're not afraid of experience. Um, and we want to see the convergence of, of word and spirit. Sometimes I fear that cessationists are so obsessed with the word that they somehow ignore the reality of the spiritual realm. Um, I think charismatics tend sometimes to overemphasize Old Testament narrative over New Testament epistles. Uh, when they, when mm. you ask them to give justification for something, sometimes they'll go to the Old Covenant rather than to the, the New Covenant. I think one of the great uh, blessings from the charismatic renewal is this heightened emphasis on spiritual warfare. 
the reality of the demonic and the authority of the believer. Uh, unfortunately, the, the downside to that is some would then say, well, every sin you commit is because of a demonic spirit. You can't break smoking. Oh, you got a spirit of nicotine. Uh, oh, you can't stop shopping. You've got a spirit of greed. Well, sometimes I'm not always convinced that Satan, that, that we need much of Satan's help to sin. I think we can do pretty good <laughs> job on our own. Um, so I think the charismatic world has done a good job in alerting us to the biblical reality of what I call post-conversion encounters with the spirit. I wouldn't necessarily call it spirit baptism, but being filled and empowered. I think they have heightened uh, the evangelical world to the power of prayer. Um, as far as the future is concerned, I think I think charismatics really need to labor at being more gospel-centered. What exactly is the gospel? How do I faithfully proclaim the gospel? How do I see all of Christian life being grounded in the truths of the gospel? Uh, I think there's a need for a greater Christ-centered uh, focus among charismatics. Sometimes the Holy Spirit gets all the attention and Christ is somewhat overshadowed, and yet we know the Spirit was given to shine a light on Jesus and to magnify Jesus. Um, I think charismatics, sadly, sometimes tend to be weak in ecclesiology. That is the doctrine of how the local church is constructed and governed. A bad ecclesiology hurts people. And if you don't know what that means, just look out at, across the expanse of the evangelical world right now and all the moral failures and the bullying going on and the financial mismanagement. Um, and sometimes that's due to bad ecclesiology. Um, I think I think the charismatic world needs to really avoid what I call toxic triumphalism. The idea that because we have the fullness of the Spirit, we're not going to have to face hardship and trial. And if we do, God will always give us a way over it rather than through it. Um, that triumphalistic spirit can be very arrogant and prideful. Um, I think sometimes charismatics, I, obviously, you know, you think about uh, some of the dangers. We think about the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth movement, the word of faith movement, some of these uh, variations within the charismatic Pentecostal world can be very dangerous. And I think the charismatics need to be alert to that and be real clear about what is and is not biblical. So there, there are a lot of strengths, a lot of great things that the charismatic movement have brought to the evangelical world, but there are also a lot of weaknesses that charismatics need to be careful to avoid. Right. It, it seems like the experience is really where it comes down to that they elevate experience to such a high level that people have a vision or and they um it becomes authoritative that right. sort of thing they need to tether all experience to scripture tie it to the word of god and be very careful about endorsing the legitimacy of some experience that can't be justified from scripture right and there seems to be a fierce independence and a, a um a lack of uh, accountability and empire building going on. Mm -hmm. And people want to see the man of God, the star man of God, who's got, you know, 20,000 people in their church and has all the power that the world does. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of permutations, as it were, in the emergence and development of the charismatic Pentecostal movement. And uh, 
a lot of ups and downs, a lot of gains, a lot of losses. But the question obviously comes down to, is it biblical? Are we, uh, is our experience of the Spirit and our belief in these gifts taught in Scripture something that we should embrace and prayerfully pursue? And I think the answer to that is yes. Yeah, there, there's certainly something there I can't get away from. And that's where I think the vineyard has gone out of its way since the beginning to take, uh, to be in that radical middle. Mm-hmm. That middle between, you know, really solid theology and biblical study, but also the experience, the vitality, the gifts of the Spirit, and not get too, pulled too far either way. So, so true. So true. All right. Well, um, I'm Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been taking a look at spiritual gifts with Dr. Sam Storms. He is the author of uh, Understanding Spiritual Gifts, a comprehensive guide published in 2020. So follow the link below to check it out. Uh, Dr. Storms, thanks a million for coming on the show today. Dennis, it's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed our time. Thank you. All right. Peace to everyone. <laughs>